Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 456 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm your co host and CEO of the Australian Writers Centre, where you'll find writing courses and a wonderfully supportive writing community. I'm here with Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate author of, oh, let's see, the Mapmaker Chronicles series, the Adaban Cipher series, and now the Maven and Reeve series. And the latest book is The Wolf's Howl. How are you, Al? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm, uh, you know, <laughs> getting towards the winding down end of the year. Yes. I actually think I started winding down a little bit earlier than I probably should have this year, to be honest. I feel like I, I just sort of decided that I should just take it easier than usual. And, but also uh, that's been... because we didn't wind up in the same velocity no, as we would in yeah. other years. Yeah. yeah, that's probably true. There's a lot of social things happening, which is all there a bit are. terrifying because yes. I don't know if I remember how to how to social. Um, yep. But, yeah, well, it's, you know, it's just that that's what I'm doing. I'm winding Sounds and socialising. What about you? What are you up to? What am I up to? I've had a bit of a musical week, as in musical theatre, Mm-hmm. Um, because cause it's been a bit rainy, um, you know, in mm. New South Wales or in on the eastern seaboard. And um, uh, so that meant that I get in a slightly more intimate relationship with Netflix than I usually do because you can't go out. And mm-hmm. I watched Tick, Tick, Boom, which is fantastic. Um, it's directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda and it's actually a autobiography autobiographical musical by Jonathan Larson, who was ultimately the creator of the musical Rent. And oh, it was, yes. Yes. So it was a musical he actually wrote before Rent. Um, yes. And, uh, and it's brilliant, absolutely oh, brilliant. Excellent. Andrew Garfield, you know, like two Spider-Mans ago, um, mm. was – Two Spider-Mans ago. <laughs> who was also – you want to be that network. guy, don't you? You want to be two <laughs> Spider-Mans ago. Who's <laughs> actually British and he's playing Jonathan Larson and he's absolutely brilliant. I didn't even know he could sing but he can and he's fantastic and it's such an inspiring and really clever musical and I was just so inspired after it even though it was still raining. I finished watching the musical. I was so creatively powered up. I finished a couple of creative projects that had been just hanging over my head for weeks and I'd been procrastinating and procrastinating and I literally just did them. I was so impressed with the Oh, oh, the 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 momentum that it created. So that was musical experience number one. Right. And musical experience number two was last night I went to Come From Away ah. in the Capitol Theatre in Sydney, which is the musical um, about the aftermath of September 11 when 38 planes and over 7,000 people converged on this tiny little town called Gander in Newfoundland uh, in Canada and how this town, whose population doubled basically overnight, half of them terrified people who had sat on the tarmac for 20 hours or whatever, wondering Mm. what was going on, how this town coped with this sudden influx of people and it's such a wonderfully uplifting um, story about community spirit and, you know, humanity, just beautiful, absolutely wonderful. If you have a chance to go and see Come From Away, you should definitely go see it. So that's my musical week. Goodness me, you have had a musical week. Excellent. I have. Anyway, but this is not So You Want to Watch a Musical. 
No. <laughs> no, it's not. So let's move on to the world of writing and publishing. Um, I just want to give a big shout out to Anika Molesworth, who is coming up on the podcast uh, in coming weeks. She wrote Our Sunburnt Country, which is a memoir and also a call to arms, really, of um, oh, the, the the way we do our farming and of um, the way we approach climate change in Australia and, and in the world. And Anika had done our creative nonfiction course to, to help her with that book. And that book is going gangbusters. It's been in the Australian. Um, it was uh, shouted out on the Sydney Morning Herald just a few days ago. And, and they, you know, they say it's a personal, often poetically rendered exploration of her deep connection with her family's sheep station near Broken Hill this ancient continent and the earth. And that is not an understatement. It is a beautifully written book and it's also so interesting. So big congratulations to Anika Molesworth for getting such accolades um, in the Sydney Morning Herald. But apart from that, what's happening with you, Al? We have, oh, what, a day left, a day left to get some special signed copies for, of well, your Well, if you're listening to this on Tuesday the 30th of November, you are in luck because mm. this is the very last day of the special offer on the signed copies of all of my novels. Um, the link's in the show notes. You need to get your order in today and I will dispatch ASAP. Um, I'm looking at stock levels and the fact that books are not available in a lot of places and oh, I do yeah, have limited stock in hand. So if you're thinking mm. about books for young readers, middle grade readers, um, have a look because a person personalised signed novel um, is a really special gift. Uh, So, yeah, so if you're listening on the 30th of November, get in today. Uh, Link is in the show notes at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. Is that right? Is that where it is? Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love getting signed author copies. Well, not author copies. I love getting signed books by authors. Yeah, and getting the one that's, you know, to you as opposed to just the random signature I think Mm. um, makes it even more special. I have a little selection of of, uh, books that have been signed to the boys over the years from various authors. Um, And, of course, you know, you don't throw those ones out. You don't cull those books. So we have a shelf for those books. um, Oh, wow. And they're much, much cherished, yeah. Anyway, Mm. um, what else is on this week? This week, the final Furious Fiction for the year. Very, very exciting. It opens on Friday the 3rd of December. If you're new to Furious Fiction, it's very exciting. It starts at 5pm on the first Friday of every month. It goes for 55 hours and it finishes on midnight, at midnight on the Sunday. And you get some clues where you then write a, you furiously write a piece of fiction <laughs> um, uh, using those, those clues. And uh, you write 500 words, so it's a short, short story, and you go in the running to win $500. So if you want to make sure you're on that list so you get the clues straight away and you can get started straight away, then go to furiousfiction.com.au. 
And uh, I just love seeing all of the fantastic entries that come in and um, I love looking at the shortlist because it's full of such talented people who can craft a story in 500 words. It's really good. Well, there's a lot of – always a lot of excitement online mm. around it. Like it's um, – there's a, a group of, you know, diehard fans who are yes. always in there every weekend cheering each other on. Um, and it's great to see like that sense of community that's grown up around it I think is lovely. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, so let's move on to our competition this week. We have a five-book pack of new-release young adult fiction. So these are ideal Christmas gifts for the young readers in your life or for you to kick back and enjoy because, you know, I read um, – I read YA, I read young adult, I read middle grade even. And if you're an aspiring children's or YA author, this pack will be brilliant for you, uh, especially to help you research the current market to help with your own mm. writing projects. So the uh, the books that you can get are the uh, Dark Rise by C.S. Packat, and this is the first book in a brilliant YA fantasy trilogy, and you may have heard C.S. Packat in um, our last episode, episode 455, and talks mm. about Dark Rise. There's also It's Not You, It's Me by Gabrielle Williams, a literally life-changing novel about time travel, soulmates and serial killers that asks mm. a very big question, can you ever change your fate? Tercielle and Eleanor by Garth Nix, a long-awaited prequel to a classic Old Kingdom fantasy series. Dragon Skin by Karen Foxley, a magical tale about a girl who saves a dragon and rescues her family. And Sugartown Queens by Mala Nunn, a stunning portrait of a family divided and an uplifting story of how friendship saves and heals. All excellent books to be in this book pack that you can mm. win. Entries close on the 6th of December. So go to writercentre.com.au slash win and follow the instructions. That's writercentre.com.au slash win. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like the book that we've written together called So You Want to Be a Writer, How to Get Started While You Still Have a Day Job. Full of practical tips, motivation and inspiration, it's ideal for anyone who's thinking of dipping their toes into the wonderful world of writing. We've created a blueprint for aspiring writers to follow and it's suitable regardless of whether you want to plunge straight into this new career or if you need to explore it while you're still busy in your day job. Let us hold your hand as you turn your dream into a reality. Buy your copy today at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au forward slash book. So, Al, are you ready for the word of the week? Do you know what? What if I said no? <laughs> Would it stop you in any way? No, it no. was not. So let's just pretend that I said yes. <laughs> okay. This is a great one. A blout. That's A-B-L-A-U-T. A blout. Do you know it? A blout. Yeah, a blout. me. A blout me. A <laughs> blout you. So it's not when you're trying to say about when you're drunk. <laughs> a blout. Okay, it's a bit nerdy, but bear with me. A blout is the regular change inside words, usually with the vowel, showing an alteration in the meaning of the word. So I'll give you examples. Sing, sang, sung. So the I, the A, the U, right? Mm. Give, gave. Break, broke. Mm. Foot, feet. Mm. And that 
internal vowel change is something you do see a lot in children's rhymes and picture books like Australian Writers' Centre graduate Victoria McKinley's book Ribbit Rabbit Robot, a blout. Cool, huh? Oh, it's beyond cool. <laughs> Absolutely way beyond cool. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you'd like to write fiction for kids and teens, our five-week online course, How to Write for Children and Young Adults, will help you get there faster. Find your voice, create characters, dialogue and plots to fit your age group and write compelling stories that young readers will love, all in a couple of hours a week. You'll also enjoy the convenience of learning from anywhere and get your very own tutor providing personal feedback on your writing. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash children's author. All right, let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Who is it, Al? Uh, This week we are talking to Inga Simpson and this was a really interesting conversation for me. Uh, Inga has an obsession with trees um, almost as much, well, probably mm-hmm. more so that I also have an obsession with trees. And so we were able to discuss her recent picture book, which is called um, something about trees. What's it called? It's called The Book of Australian Trees. But the focus of our conversation was about her new sort of literary spec fiction novel, which is called mm. The Last Woman in the World, um, which also features trees. Uh, she has a, um, a thing for the natural world and it's a really interesting story. And we had a lovely chat about writing and trees. <laughs> Inga Simpson is the Australian author of fiction and non-fiction for adults and children. Inga's novels, Mr. Wig, Nest and Where the Trees Were, have been short and long-listed for numerous awards, including the Miles Franklin and the Stella Prize, while Understory, My Life with Australian Trees, was shortlisted for the Adelaide Writers Week Award for non-fiction. Inga was also the winner of the Eric Rolls Nature Writing Prize for her essay, Triangulation. Her latest novel is The Last Woman in the World, out now with Ashette. Welcome to the program, Inga. Oh, thanks, Alison. Yeah, great to talk with you. All right, we're going to go back to the very beginning um, and we're going to talk about how your first novel came to be published. Can you talk us through the publishing story of Inga Simpson? <laughs> yeah, that was really Mr. Wig. It was kind of my breakout book. Uh, I submitted it to um, the Hashett Queensland Writers' Centre Manuscript Development Program, which just meant sending in a manuscript and, and hoping for the best and I was lucky enough to get a call back, you know, asking for the whole manuscript. It must have just been the first 50 pages, I guess, initially, and they asked for the whole manuscript, which was a problem because I hadn't really finished it. And um, <laughs> There's I a had, lesson there, right? <laughs> yeah, there is a lesson there. And you're supposed to have 72 hours notice, but I somehow ended up with only 36 hours and I had oh. to complete the novel and, and reach the minimum word limit in that 36 hours. So, How much um, did you have to go? I was only 5,000 words short, but, you know, as you know, you can't just add 5,000 words to the end of a story or the beginning or the middle. You know, it has to be distributed throughout. So, um, yeah, I that's actually how it ended up or the character ended up being called Mr Wig because... Mr. Wig is two words 
um, as opposed to one, so that bumped my word count up significantly. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, um, and I took out every hyphen, you know, you wouldn't believe it. I just got up to 55,000 words at 5 o'clock and wow. sent it in. And later, um, you know, when it was selected for the for the final program, they, they told, when, later when it was published, they told me it wouldn't have mattered. <laughs> if it had been 45, they would have been happy to publish it. Wow. But um, I didn't know any of that initially, so it was a group of nine of us went away on a little retreat in Brisbane and we had a chance to get feedback direct from a publisher, from Hachette, uh, about our novel. And so it, it really was a manuscript, like the, the title suggests, a manuscript development program. It was detailed feedback, some written but mainly given in conversation to, you know, what needed work, what was working in the novel but what needed more work for the development. And um, we learned a lot about the publishing industry and the publishing process, editing processes, things like that over the sort of long weekend. And then we all went home to do the work on our manuscripts. Um, And I think probably the most important thing was, you know, the publisher sliding her card over the table and, you know, I had her direct email address and, it was sort of the beginning of a conversation. So I, I did the work and resubmitted the manuscript and they liked what I'd done. And um, and here we are. Here we are. Mr. Wig was published and, and did pretty well. And then, yeah, all my novels since have been published. So had you submitted a first draft into that into that competition? Like was that first 50 pages? We Obviously, you know, you were still working on a first draft at that point, were you? I had a first draft and the first 50 would have been quite polished, I yeah. think. Um, but, yeah, as is often the case, the back end is less tidy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so it just it needed polishing up the rest of it. Um, and was it the first novel you'd ever attempted to write or had you written things prior to that for your, like, no, that I'd, were unpublished? I had written two novels prior to that. Um, and the first one was sort of detective fiction and the next one was speculative fiction, so both genre novels. And um, I did get the detective novel published by a small press in America, but, you know, just to keep it without a trace. And um, and I'm, I'm glad of that, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and then the speculative fiction novel off the grid was shortlisted for the unpublished manuscript award with the that was the Queensland Premier's Awards in those days. It was shortlisted, but, yeah, I never got it published. So Mr Wig was my attempt at a, a realist novel, but it didn't really turn out that way. <laughs> and what? so what made you decide to do that instead of, you know, sort of more genre or, you know, go back to detective or what, what, what drew you to that story that then became your first novel, your first published, award-winning, shortlisted, et cetera, novel? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it was probably a reaction, you know, having had those previous two manuscripts rejected by Australian publishers and some of the feedback on them. So I thought, oh, we'll go back to what I know. So that's um, rural Australia, you know, growing up on a property. Perhaps if I draw on that, uh, everything that seemed to be getting published at that time and, and winning awards and so on seemed to be sort of realist fiction. And so I thought, all right, well, that's what I've got to do then. And I had ideas to write, you know, the great Australian novel, whatever yeah, that is. Whatever that is, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, Mr. Wig is actually, it has a speculative element. So mm. um, that was always there. The trees started, fruit trees started talking 
to each other and to Mr. Wig and, you know, there's a fairy tale in it. So mm. it isn't, it didn't end up a realist novel at all. So mm. um, that's, that's just part of who I am as a writer, I guess. Well, so what was your pro- like? What's your process for writing a novel? Like, has it changed from from writing those earlier works to what you do now? Like, are you are you someone who you know just kind of comes up with a random idea and starts writing? Or how do you how do you sort of get a, a full manuscript together? Yeah, um, it's a good question, um, a big one maybe. But mm-hmm. my process probably hasn't changed a huge amount. You, you just get better at it, right? You know, mm. you get um, the first draft is better, or the zero draft, as I call it. I write that zero draft just for me. I try not to think about audience or the publisher or anything. Just feel free to write whatever comes in whatever order. And I don't plan. I might have a few key points that I know, plot points, character points. I just start writing it. So it's a bit of a mess, that zero draft. Um, often write the ending relatively early in that process so I know where I'm going. I'm not sort of rushing to get there. I know where it's going to end up. It's just how it gets there. Um, so I'm looking for the plot to, and characters to aspects of that at least to come organically out of the process and out of my ideas and imagery, um, you know, to access more of the subconscious um, part of my mind, which is probably more interesting than, the, you know, <laughs> the upfront planning, boring, um, more boring, straightforward, linear um, part of my brain. So, yeah, the, that zero draft, like I say, can be a bit of a mess. And then I try, I do kind of a map of the whole thing, a breakdown scene by scene, you know, who's in it, where it is, what imagery have I used, what happens, you know, which is useful. Because if, if you look down that column, plot and subplot if there's nothing in those columns for a scene or you know that that needs some work there needs to be some plot going on so somehow (laughs) something has to happen (laughs) something has to happen um you know and that map shows up holes that you've left you know where this character appears in chapter one and they don't return to chapter 52 (laughs) things like that so it's bringing back in that rational mind that rational editor's brain to pull it together into something that's, um, you know, has a kind of order and a sense and might be ready to send to the publisher to read. Um, you know, and then I, I'll get some informal feedback from them on that first draft, you know, what's working, not working structurally, which fires me up again, you know, to, to go at it afresh. So there's a strong theme of nature, in particular trees, running through your work, is it something that you've had your whole life or is that something that's developed over time? I think it's always been there, you know, a combination of growing up on a property and um, sort of gravitated towards the more the wilder part of that property, which was quite densely treed. That was where I played as a child, if you like, and camped out and stuff. Um, and Lord of the Rings was a formative text for me um, and you know trees are really at the fore of Tolkien's mythology aren't they you know mm. the story um, so the ends you know so yeah. somehow the combination of fairy tale trees and um, fantasy kind of trees and Australian bush something gelled 
in terms of my imagination there or my writing voice perhaps. But it was really a tree change that I made in my 30s uh, to the Sunshine Coast hinterland, the property I talk about in in understory, which was it was like living inside a forest. So that really changed the way I see the world, you know, literally and imaginatively. So your first children's fiction, which was uh, not fiction rather, your first children's book, which was published in May this year, is non-fiction. It's called The Book of Australian Trees. Um, it's beautifully illustrated by Alicia Rogerson. Was that something that you, like, did you go to your publisher and say, this is something I want to do? Or was that something that they came to you and said, we've noticed you like trees, Emma. <laughs> how about we do this? Yeah, I think my publisher at the time, Robert Watkins, I think he suggested it. Mm. Um, and so understory, each chapter is a species of tree. Mm. So I guess it, it suggested uh, the idea to him probably. Mm. But, yeah, he said, what, what about just a dozen particular trees and, you know, write in that really lyrical way that you do about them and we'll find a beautiful illustrator. So, you know, it took me a while to put the words together. You know, less words is actually harder, as you know. Um, yeah, and he found the right publisher, I think. It's sort of she, her style is quite like my writing style, I think. It's based in botanical, you know, observation. Mm. But there's also something a little bit mythical or fairy tale about them, which I think is really suggestive for kids and, and leaves plenty of room for their imaginations to, to fill in the gaps for, you know, we really wanted the trees to be, to have personalities, you know, to be almost like, yeah, beings um, with particular, each species with particular characteristics. And, uh, yeah, I think the feedback I've had anyway from young people, it seems to appeal, seems to have hit a spot at the moment. How many um, trees did you include in that? Like how many species did you choose? Fifteen. Yeah, sorry, there are fifteen different species. And how did you? I was going to say, how did you choose which ones to include and which ones to leave out? I chose ones I knew well. So the iron bark, which is sort of like my heartwood, the tree I grew up with, signature tree of the central west of New South Wales, where I grew up which I know really well, so it's sort of easier for me to describe, and spotted gums, which are all around me where I live now. Um, but, yeah, I really, um, you know, kids love, particularly young boys love the biggest tree, the oldest tree, yeah. you know, or anything, the biggest yeah. dinosaur, the smallest dinosaur, that yeah. sort of thing. So I yeah. remembered that and so I tried to work in, um, yeah, the, the kind of fattest tree, the oldest tree, the tallest tree, that sort of thing, the longest living tree. And to also represent, you know, most of the states um, and different habitats too. Because, yeah, it's not not just about trees, but the animals that that live in them and around them. Yeah. So you've sort of started out as a professional writer and researcher, and your um, bio says, you know, that you worked for federal parliament and the Commonwealth Ombudsman. How important do you think those skills and that experience are in writing your books? <laughs> I mean, in a way, I had to unlearn everything I was taught in those environments. <laughs> you know, no passive voice, yeah, um, yeah, active voice, and um, you know, I like my images and so on, which were forbidden in the professional world. Yeah, but it, it did teach me a work ethic, and you know, working to parameters and a deadline, and um, although you know, there's a lot of description in all of my work, I do work pretty hard at trimming away the excess 
um, you know, every word, every sentence has to be earning its weight, even the description, you know, it has to be showing something about character or plot or, you know, adding to your atmosphere and mood and so on. So that editing process of cutting away everything you don't need um, is probably something I learned at those desks and certainly the research skills, you know, um, yeah. working under much more experienced people and having amazing resources. Yeah, got a good sense of, of what's out there um, for the research process. Uh, but, yeah, really my creative writing is a reaction <laughs> against those days. <laughs> <you know. laughs> All right, so turning yeah. to your new novel, The Last Woman in the World, tell us a bit about the book and what inspired it. Yeah, so it's um, it's speculative, you know. It's the the near future, um, you know. And this is the genre I started out reading and writing, so you know it was it was nice to go back go back to that comfort zone for me. Um, it's really about the t- the times, um, the world we're living in today, which has changed quite a lot since I started writing. So initially, the idea was about fear. Mm. and anxiety, both individual and societal, and how that's shared and how we respond to that. And my character, Rachel, has hidden, chosen to hide herself away. She's a glass artist, and she's really barricaded herself in against the world, has minimal contact, and just produces her work, lives in a forest by a river. But, you know, this is a post-apocalyptic book and story, and um, Unbeknownst to her, a great deal has changed in the world and she finds out when a young woman with a very young baby knocks on her door and asks for help and, and brings her news of yeah, pretty catastrophic change in the world outside and she has to choose whether to stay where she is, hole up, um, or whether to you know help this woman and her sick child and go out and face the world, whatever has happened out there. It's kind of a road trip too, which I've always wanted to <laughs> to write a walking journey in a road trip. Yeah, it's um. So reading it, there's a you know right from the opening pages, the opening chapters, there's a, a very close kind of creepy atmosphere about it. Like that whole sense of you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop the whole time. Um, yeah. and I, which I found, you know fascinating because there's also a very deft sense of place from the opening lines you know exactly where Rachel is and you get this sense of what kind of world she's created for herself do you do you set out to like it's almost like your landscape becomes you know a character like do you, or you know the setting becomes a character in itself do you do you set out to do that or is that something that evolves as you as you build the the world it's probably something I can't help I actually start with that um the sense of the, the place, start with the place and describing the place and the main character in that place, you know, how they relate to it starts to show a lot about their character and suggest plot to me. Mm. Um, and with this book I thought it was important, that sense of place, as they, you know, they're traversing a number of different landscapes. Mm. Um, so to show some of the things that are going on in the world or have gone on while Rachel's been locked away, it's showing that. and Everything, pretty much everything else about the world has been, you know, upended. So what is remains the same is the landscape. It's also where Rachel is comfortable. So she's not great with people. Mm. 
um, or in a town, but, you know, in, in the natural landscape, um, she's very comfortable and capable. And, yeah, she's someone who suffers a lot from a lot of anxiety. That's why she's locked herself away. So she would seem to be an unlikely hero mm. in that way to, to deal with this crisis. But I wanted to show her strengths in the landscape as someone who's resourceful and can navigate, you know, without um, Google Maps or Siri, <laughs> um, you know, and get this woman from A to B. Um, yeah, it's a way for me to ground myself in a story and to show the character in a particular way. What do you think the keys then are to creating a sense of place in a novel? Like what, you know, to you're obviously very good at it. What sort of things, if you were talking someone else through how to create a sense of place in their novel, what are the keys to, to making it work? Um, the more specificity, the better. So, you know, instead of a hill or a tree, you know, what sort of tree, um, maybe an image instead of the hill, you know, give some mm. sense of its shape and kind of character. Yeah, just layering up those details. Um, yeah, remembering that there are animals, different types of plants, you know, not just trees um, in your field of view. Yeah, maybe not too much description at once, just a little image here and there, building it up. You've got the whole novel to kind of set the scene, to build up that landscape, to build that world. Um, and it is world building. You use that word. It is world building. It's just, it's realist. You know, it's um, yeah, trying to convey a three dimensional world and on the page is is always challenging. But um, you know, all five senses, not just what we see, but what you what you what the character smells, what the character hears, and everything through the character's eyes. I think that's really it. Um, how does this character see it? You know. I, it could have been a different story if it was from Hannah's point of view, who's not comfortable in the natural world. So she wouldn't see the same details um, that Rachel does. Mm. Is, um, it, is it something you do in the editing process? Like, isn't as a in, lot of it, yeah. A lot of it comes straight up. That's probably where I'm comfortable starting. Yeah. And with, with this, yeah, there is a, a journey that the characters take. And I did do my research and walk or drive most of that journey. Yeah. So, yeah, research is key too, getting out and seeing it for yourself, actually being in those spaces and taking some field notes, if you like, while you're there. So I've got those to draw on. Um, yeah, if I run out of ideas for the plot, you know, I'm always going back to that tinkering with the world building, um, dropping what I don't need, bringing in specific details to add to the kind of atmosphere, you know, that creepy atmosphere. Mm, mm. Um that you mentioned with this book in particular. It was important with this book in particular to, you know, have threats just around the corner all the time. And so mm. whilst the landscape um, is a safe place for Ray, you know, there are still threats in it, the people who've survived, for example. And, um, so, yeah, trying to build atmosphere with that description. Well, it's kind of the greatest you know, human threat of all time is that sense that something is out there, isn't it? And if you start from that premise, that something out there has to be sort of like, as you say, around every corner the whole time to keep that atmosphere building, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. Um, and the pacing of that too, you know, again, you've got the whole novel, so sort of pacing it, so it's gradually building. Um, yeah, you can't have it all peaking in the first 50 pages. 
Um, so as a resident like of the of the South Coast, you you know, having survived bushfires and the COVID pandemic and all of the things, like the, the bushfires were quite a transformational thing. Um, I'm also on the South Coast, so I I know what it what it looked like and what it did. Um, was this a novel a way of working through a sense of what could possibly go wrong next? <laughs> yeah, perhaps. I mean, the fir- I had almost finished the first draft before the fires came. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, of course, fire found its way into the novel. I couldn't think about much else for a long time. So, yeah, yeah. It definitely was part of my process, processing of those events and the events that ensued. You know, um, there were floods after that and storms mm. and, it, and then COVID. It just felt like all part of the same thing. Yeah. You know, pretty much how we've treated the planet. Um. So, yeah, that feeling and almost of overwhelm, um, I'm, I'm sure, is reflected in the book. Yeah. You know, in the storylines that I, I took in the second and third draft. So it changed quite a lot, you know, after the fires. It was transformed the manuscript, not just the author. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. Um, yeah. And speaking of fire, the one of the things I did love about the about the beginning was the descriptions of the of the glass blowing and that sense of you know, Rachel losing herself in that small world because it's you know you have to concentrate the mindfulness of it is is that something you're familiar with do you actually do that or is it just that just from a researching perspective I've long been interested and admired it there's you know the uh, Canberra glass works mm. in Canberra where I've uh, lived and visited, uh, you know, a lot. So that city. So I've been there and seen it and admired it and read about it, you know. Um, but I, for the novel, for Rachel to be convincing, I did actually go off and do a workshop and learn how to do it. Right. Uh, it's really hard. Yeah, it looks really hard. I mean, even just watching the Netflix series, I can say it looks really hard. Oh, I saw that. That was great. It was. Flown away. Flown away. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. great. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I watched that. You know, and some of the personalities in the hot shop were fantastic yeah. out there too. Yeah, so definitely. Yeah, and it's really hard. You do need to be quite physically strong mm. and able. Um, and it's quite tense, you know, while the glass is in that liquid form. Mm. Um, but I loved it. But, yeah, I, I was not particularly good at it. Um, <laughs> so it's not going to be a new career then? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think I hoped that it would be. But, um, no. Um, so you used to run writers' retreats on the South Coast and you do run them, you know, occasionally for other people. How important do you think it is for writers to remove themselves from everyday life now and then? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it is to get out of your home space, uh, one, for the sort of familiarity of that, but two, for the the sort of necessary responsibilities and, and tasks that we get caught up with in our own homes um, and, with, you know, depending on your your family set up, your, your family responsibilities. Uh, for women in particular, I find they tend to put their writing second, you know, mm. to their kids or their partner or house duties or whatever. Um, so, yeah, that chance to go away to a creative space, a beautiful creative space, um, for me that needs to be in nature. You know, and I tend to lead nature writing retreats, so it tends to be in fairly wild or natural settings and I guess also being with other writers having a chance to talk about your process or your experiences 
with other riders, not just in class, but, you know, out of class too. Mm. I think the sort of drinks around the fire on the deck, whatever it is after sessions, talking with other riders is an important part um, of that process. But, yeah, I still take, you know, I ride every day. I have a daily practice, but um, for sort of that process of turning the book from a zero draft to a first draft, I still take time out and, you know, go somewhere else other than home to really focus on that creative work for that time, you know, so I'm really living it. I, I, I know, I know it. I have it all in my head for that time. So that's a great gift to give yourself actually mm. time with the manuscript and to really be immersed in the story. And yeah, I, I, I'm always surprised by how much of the story in the book comes in that process. You know, only then is it sort of free to bubble out. Um, and it's kind of a wonderful feeling to, to be living in at that time and just just that, you know, for a few weeks or a month. So um, I think that's probably an important part of my process and I think for most writers the chance to get away and focus on their work, you know, even for a week um, to focus on their work solely. And, you know, the retreats I do, pe- people are fed, they don't need to cook for themselves. So really, there's no excuse for not. See, that sounds really attractive to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To treat it like the centre of your life rather than something you keep pushing to the periphery. So I think they're great experiences for people um, on many levels, and, and usually help progress their work. So switching gears from time spent by yourself, how do you then promote your work? Like are you someone who embraces the promotional aspect of publishing like with social media and stuff or are you more like your character, Rachel, and would rather rather (laughs) be in the forest? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, Look, I'm on social media. Um, I probably use Facebook and Insta more than Twitter these days. Mm. But, yeah, that's an important part of promoting the work and um, supporting booksellers, you know, who are promoting my work, you know, so retweeting people's tweets and and just thanking people who've given a nice review and sharing that review. I mean, those are just – it's just good manners. Yeah. Um, It happens to be good publicity. You know, people see it and it – the the cover of the book appears again and again. You know, this works. It's pretty effective. Yeah. I think for – helping get books into people's hands. Um, I think you can overdo it, though. You know, you don't want to be um, just bombing social media with, yeah, look at me, look at my work. Um, you know, there's a nice saying about you've got to balance up what you give versus what, you know, you're asking of, yeah. of the reader or the the viewer or whatever we call people. Um, consuming social media so yeah on Insta for example I share a lot of my photos in the natural world um, and say where they are and yeah so that's through COVID I know a lot of people appreciated that just a little glimpse of beauty um, every day and then so when my book comes out and I chuck a few pictures up of the book and, and reviews and so on you know I'm hoping that that um, is one reaching the right sort of people who are following me because they share that interest in the natural world, but two that it isn't too too loud. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So 
We're going to finish up today, Inga, uh, with our final question that we ask everybody, um, which would be your top three tips for writers. Um, yeah, okay. A daily practice of writing or at least, you know, five or six days a week, but a regular time where you write. Um, and even if that's just in a journal, you know, but some sort of daily practice where you're writing sentences and gathering your thoughts and conveying them on the page. Um, reading. <laughs> um, everyone probably says that. But, yeah, I probably read more than I write. Um, I get a lot of my ideas that way. Um, I'm, I'm keeping, I'm feeding my imagination, if you like. That's putting fuel in the tank of my own imagination. Um, and the third one probably is taking time out from writing and the writing world and social media. For me, that's spending time in nature, a different sort of rejuvenation mm-hmm. and also inspiration. But yeah, just a kind of a, re- a mental rest, uh, which, which is harder and harder to get, I think, the way we, we live now the way the world is constructed now um you know through covid particularly all that doom scrolling you know it's very exhausting Mm. and it takes a toll on our imaginations i think so you know whether it's wandering in a gallery or going on a on a long walk on your own whatever it is a swim in the ocean something to yeah just refresh and rejuvenate yeah you need to be it's like the opposite of being an athlete some way, in some ways, isn't it, being a writer? <laughs> so much sedentary time, but you do have to keep your imagination in good health. So true. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been absolutely fascinating. I've really enjoyed it. If any of our listeners would like to find uh, Inga online, you'll find her at ingasimpson.com.au. We very much appreciate your time today and best of luck with both of your new books. Oh, thanks, Alison. Yeah, really good to talk with you. Thank you. There we go, Inga Simpson. That was really cool, Al. Thanks. Yeah, it was a great chat. I really enjoyed it. Mm-mm-mm. All right, so we're now at the end of this week's episode. What are you doing in the coming week? This requires me to think ahead, which is, mm-hmm. you know, I'm at that point in the year where thinking ahead is not easy. Um, let's see what's happening. Uh, so Book Boy is finally graduating from high school, having the formal and the whole bit. I'm having lunch with all wow. the mums that I've been at school. I feel like I've been at school with yeah. since uh, since kindy. Um, and, yeah, so it's just kind of like a winding up of that aspect of, you know, his life and my yeah. life at the school for him. Of course, I still have to. You know, poor old book boy junior. He's like yeah. all the focus is on him now. Yeah, <laughs> he's, yeah. He's cowering. He's cowering end under of the, the era, couch. though. End of the era. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, then it really he is. End over. of an yeah. era. Yeah. Mm. Um, I think that's part of the reason why I just feel like this year just needs to be, you know, mm. just go gently into the night at this point mm. in time. Mm. Um, yeah. So that's kind of where I'm up to. And uh, what about you? What are you up to? Well, do you know what? I think I'm going to continue along the musical vein because I'm now going to watch uh, In the Heights on whatever streaming service In the Heights is on, which is also the uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda musical that he created before Hamilton. Mm. Um, I've seen it live, but I'm going to see the, you know, movie version because I'm sure it'll be fantastic. So... 
bit of, you know, screen time, but that's okay. That's hmm. okay. Well, you All right. know, it's that time of year, right? <laughs> it is, it is. Where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at altait, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at alisontaitwriter. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.